if there's one thing I could say to the nurses listening, I would say that take yourself seriously. It doesn't mean you're not going to get things wrong. Over time, you develop instincts, you know how to do the job. Take that seriously because that's the best way to serve your patients. And you've earned that. You deserve Ooh, that. Oh, I got to go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. I swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my fan, they can't eat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Cup of Nurses podcast here with your hosts, Peter and Matt. We are nurses on a mission to change the world, one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. But before that, if you find value in the show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for all info, updates, and all our merch releases. For our lifestyle podcast, check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. Thank y'all for tuning in. Let me introduce you to our guest, Teresa Brown. Teresa Brown is an author of New York Times bestseller, The Shift. She earned a PhD in English from the University of Chicago before pursuing her career in nursing. She now lectures on issues related to nursing, healthcare, and end of life. Her new book titled Healing is Out Now, where she tells a powerful story about her healthcare experience after her breast cancer diagnosis. Thank you, Teresa, so much for being here. Thank you for your time. Uh, You have a long history in academia. What made you switch from academia uh, to pursue a nursing field? What made you switch? What made you interested in nursing in the first place? Yeah, this is what I always call the million dollar question because most people act like you'd have to give me a million dollars to quit teaching English in college to become a nurse. So um, the true story is I grew up in Southern Missouri. My dad was a professor and he's retired now, but it, it just seemed like a great life to me. You, you know, you get to mold young minds and live in the world of knowledge and ideas. And I thought that seemed great. And so I got my PhD in English and was teaching at Tufts and it turned out, turned out his dream job was not really my dream job. Like I, I liked it fine. I think I was good enough at it, but it, it didn't have that spark, you know, that fire that I wanted. And so then I thought, wow, I spent six years getting a PhD. And now again, I have to decide what do I want to be when I grow up. And in the middle of that, I had my kids and found this whole different part of myself that liked taking care of people and mixing it up and and also learning about medical things because my second pregnancy was twins. And so I learned a lot about pregnancy and what can go on with twins. And essentially I was telling a friend who's a nurse about all this and, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you find a job that that's like this? And she said, well, you could be a nurse. Um, and I thought, really? Wow. I didn't know that because I had this very, I'll just call it stupid idea of who becomes a nurse and it has to be someone who bandaged their dolls and, you know, read biographies of Florence Nightingale and Clara Barton. And I hadn't, didn't do any of that, but it turns out those are not, as you know, the actual requirements. So I found out about accelerated nursing programs and literally within a month I was taking chemistry because now I had to go back to school 
and do the science classes that I hadn't taken so that I could get admitted to a nursing program. Yeah, because if you really think about it, teaching and nursing isn't, isn't too far uh, removed. We, as teachers, you care about your, your students. As, as, as nurses, you care about your patients. You're always giving education. You're always giving care. So it's not the most craziest uh, switch you could have done. And I like that, that you entered nursing after you, you got your, your PhD and did, the, did all that in English because a lot of times we think of nursing as something you have to enter in when you're, when you're real young, when you're fresh out of, out of school. You go to college to, to be a nurse and then when you're out, you're in your 20s and you start your nursing career that way. And there's, Matt and I get many questions from people in like their 30s, 40s that are asking, hey, should I go back into nursing? We're like, yeah, why would you not want to go back? Why would you not go into nursing? There's, there's no like age limit or there's no um, like requirements beyond you just wanting to, to, be, to be one yourself. So what made you switch to oncology and like, and like palliative care? Because you have a quite extensive history with that as well. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to what you said about older, you know, people in their thirties and forties reaching out because when my first book critical care came out, it's about my first year of being a nurse and, and people emailed me, Hey, I used to be a dancer. I was on wall street. I was a professor like you. And now I'm going back to nursing and reading your book made me feel like I'm not so crazy. So that was great to feel like there was a whole group of us who, you know, at some point in our adult lives, felt like I want a job that has more meaning for me personally, you know, not that being a professor doesn't have meaning, but just, I wanted something that was more personal. The stakes were higher. That was more hands-on. Um, yeah. And it's great to know those people are out there, but what led me into oncology, I think, well, there's a lot of cancer in my mother's family. And so it always been fascinated by oncology and kind of afraid of it. And then I realized it's, it's such a cool patient population to work with, even though it can be very sad. I will not deny that, but cancer can be a systemic disease. You know, you, you really have to be on your toes as an oncology nurse and always trying to stay a step ahead of either what the disease might be doing or what the treatment might be doing. And so I like that. I knew there would always be a lot to learn, but the truth is I didn't fully realize why I went into oncology until a few years after I'd started. And I write about this in healing my new book that came out that my mom was diagnosed with hairy cell leukemia. And about 10 years after her diagnosis, she got treated. She's fully in remission and people should know if you don't, this is not an acute leukemia, it's, it's chronic, it's rare. Most people die with it, not of it. Um, so it, it, it is not at all like the acute leukemics I was taking care of, but I had kind of put that whole fact uh, in a box away in my brain somewhere. And about three years after I'd been in oncology nursing, suddenly it came out and I thought, oh, now I really get it. Um, I really get this impulse to give back essentially to what had saved my mother's life. I was going to say, so when you wrote your first book, Critical Care, what was your biggest takeaway being an oncology nurse as far as the workload, the experiences, the patients, the emotions that you had to process with it all? I think really, and it, it's part of why I wrote the book that nursing school just does not prepare you for the reality of being a nurse. Um, 
for how chaotic the environment is, how random it can seem, how there are all these conflicting rules about things that seem the same. I mean, I, one of the things I write about is one of my first patient deaths, the death certificate has to be filled out in blue pen. And I understand that it's so that you can tell the original document from a copy, but nobody explains that. They just, it has to be filled out in blue pen. <laughs> you know, so I thought, well, what happens if you fill it out in black pen? Like, is the person not dead? Do they, does their death not get registered? And there's so many bizarre things like that, that there is an explanation for them, but you don't learn it at the time. And so I, what I would really like is if schools of nursing would do better to prepare students for the reality of the modern healthcare environment, which, you know, is that it's, as I said, chaotic, unpredictable. Um, and I, I think also how much of a team practice it is. If you're in a good place, you will feel that way. Um, I mean, of course, we had some attendings who saw it that way, some who kind of I'm the boss and this is the way things go, but you don't learn that in nursing school either. At least I didn't, you know, like how important pharmacists are. And I, I feel like we never even talked about pharmacists in nursing school. I mean, to be honest, we never even really talked about doctors and how you work with doctors. And, you know, I don't think doctors talk about nurses and how you work with nurses. And so you're thrown into this situation where here's the doctor and nurse dyad is is really how so much care happens in hospitals and no one has talked about that so um i think that's what really struck me the most um and i will say on a on a positive side just that the job was everything i hoped for it was intellectually interesting it was so rich emotionally um, just incredibly rewarding that way really gave me a sense of what's important in life, which, you know, I can't say, you know, I can get as annoyed as the next person if someone runs a you know, stop sign ahead of me or whatever, but in general gave me perspective, love my kids, enjoy my family. Being alive is great. <laughs> All that stuff you want. Right. Yeah. It Hearing you say nursing school doesn't really prepare you for the reality of nursing, that's like a revolving theme that we hear from, from everyone. I know coming out of nursing school, the hardest thing for me that we don't really learn about nursing school was talking to, to families. Maybe talk about oh. it a little bit in our like ethics class or um, maybe like a side note in some of our nursing courses, but we never really learned on how to properly approach and speak to family. And that's uh, a really big, big struggle for a lot of nurses because when you come out of nursing school, when you're in your 20s, a lot of nurses are in their 20s when they come out of nursing school and you're supposed to talk to somebody that's a lot older than you, um, you have a lot of respect for them and you have to tell them that, hey, your loved one is, is dying or, or, or they're dead. And that's something that's really, really hard to, to, to say as like a young person. So is there, anything specific, is there any specific thing that you really struggled with out of nursing school? Yeah, that, that is actually a really good point. Um, I mean, I know there are things I struggled with. I, I think another big one was, so here I was, I had a PhD, I had been a professor in college. And so I really didn't get the whole hierarchy, the sort of unspoken power relations 
Um, you know, so I felt like if I have a question, I'm going to ask it. And if I want to talk to someone, I'm going to talk to them. And, and I didn't realize till I was in the middle of it, that that's kind of weird. And there's this expectation that nurses will just be in a certain place. Um, and I encourage all nurses not to embrace that, but I'm sure you've heard that, right? It just, oh, I just try to keep my head down and do what I'm told. And, um, you know, instead of seeing themselves as colleagues with physicians. So I, th I think the divisions between all the groups and not just nurses and doctors, but also pharmacists, aides, physical therapists, cardiac rehab, you know, all these things would happen for my patients. And I didn't even know what was going on um, a lot of the time. So the, you know, the, the level of involvement of people in the care of your patient, I think I, I didn't get at all. I had a very kind of old school idea of who takes care of the patient. Um, and yeah, it is tons of people, you know, which also makes patients crazy sometimes, right? Because they don't know who anyone is when they come into the room. I was just going to say, that's a big frustration that happens when patients uh, see different kind of consultation doctors, whether it's PT, nutrition, they have no idea what's being involved in the care. That's why management uh, stresses so much to update those care boards. But I also liked how you said teamwork is very important because there's a difference between going to school, be, it being very individualized, taking tests, I have a high GPA, I'm doing really good in school, and the teamwork is not really seen there as much versus being a team player in the hospital. It's life and death. You need to do it. As far as working in states outside of California, you need to have a your lunch buddy to watch your patients while you go have a quick snack because there's no break nurses. And I could just imagine with oncology, there's so much more things being involved as far as uh, emotions and death. And sometimes it's not always a positive experience. Being in oncology, I know a few times I floated there, you have three, four patients versus some of them being discharged. One of them is just hearing a diagnosis. One of them is waiting for a bone biopsy. So they're worried and they're anxious and there's so much going on. So when you got into oncology and end of life care, how did you process your emotions or what are some tips that someone could use to process their emotions properly being a nurse? That's a really important question. And one thing I did was I learned to ride the wave of grief just to acknowledge it, live with it. Um, it helped. I actually started on an, on an oncology floor where there was a lot of bullying and that was terrible. And then switched to a floor that was on the same floor, just across an elevator bay, but with a very different environment. And the nurses on the new floor were able to talk about how they felt. So sometimes we would all be sad and acknowledge that. And that made a huge difference. Um, you know, it wasn't like anybody was trying to claim the grief, like, oh, I'm the most sad because I took care of that person the most. It was a collective loss that we felt. Um, another thing that I did was I made strict boundaries for myself and I would, I would strongly advise this to really any, any nurse, but especially if you're working in a field where you do have long-term patients who, who may die. But so my rule was I am never going to go to a patient funeral, like never. And I never have. Um, and I just, I just needed that boundary 
um, because also my kids were pretty young and I felt like I don't want to take time away from them to do that. But it, it also felt like, you know, just this is how I'm going to process. Um, there were other nurses who, if we sent a patient to the ICU, they would not go see them in the ICU. I would do that. But even then I would do it sparingly. And I think pretty much on that floor, people were pretty good about leaving things at work, um, not calling to see how somebody was doing. I mean, very occasionally I did that, but it was kind of frowned upon as, you know, you're home, you're off. Like, I know, I know you care about these people, but just there's got to be a, a border between work and life. And for me, knowing I was going to come home to my kids, my husband would always wait dinner for me. So no matter how bad a day I had, I knew I would ride my bike home and I would have dinner with the family and I would see my kids. And that was very healing for me. Um, and it's also, you know, do something that works for you. Like at one point I thought, you know, every time a patient dies, I should buy a plant. And then I thought, oh man, then I'm going to have this house full of plants I have to take care of. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I just, when I thought of, and I like plants, but when I, uh, when I thought about it, I thought, I don't think for me, that's practical. Um, so, you know, find something that works for you. I, I wish that in the hospital, they had once a month or every two months had some kind of grief ceremony where we could talk about the people who had died. I've heard of oncology units that do that. I think it's, it's really a shame that we didn't have anything like that. And I think that that would really help. And uh, you know, in hindsight, it's something I could have pushed for. I just didn't really think of it while I was in the middle of things. In the midst of the pandemic, one thing that nurses also said to help them detach from their patient's emotion, like you're mentioning, is not provide the continuity of care. So in the ICU during the mid-pandemic, we had patients on ECMO, CRT, and we would have them sometimes 30 to 60 days in our, in our ICU. Wow. So if you have the same pa same patient for two, three, four weeks on, you develop an emotional detachment to them, attachment. So then when the patient passes, there was a lot of grief and a lot of emotions to process. So nurses requested not to have the same patient uh, back. So it's like a plus and minus where you're able to provide a continuum of care, which is better for the patient. But as far as the nurse, they need that break from that same patient because the emotional connection is building. Wow, that's so smart. Yeah, it's it's interesting sometimes when I would tell people stories about this or that happened and then they'll say, what happened? And, and I say, well, I don't know. It, 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 it's hard for people to grasp what you just said, which is so smart that it's your 12 hours. You give your all, you really care about that person, but you know, you're not their physician. You're not following them. Um, it doesn't mean you don't care about them, but you're, part of the story ends with your care of them for the most part. That's, that's really smart to say, yeah, don't give me the same person because it's just too painful. Um, and I, I wish the public understood that 
better, what it's like, because if you're working ECMO and CRT, I mean, that's your patient, right? And it's really hard and really intense. And I think the general public doesn't understand how involving emotionally and physically that is um, and what it takes out of nurses who do that work. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if like we work in a field that um, is not shed light on. Everyone likes to keep it private. You don't really hear much about the nursing care, the hospital, because it's healthcare. So I understand the privacy of it, but it's, it's so private that it's really hard for you to paint a picture or help a person that doesn't work in healthcare realize what actually goes on in healthcare and how, how emotional it is. Because as, even as, as a new grad, even in nursing school, you don't really have any idea of how much emotion you put into to your career and how much you're going to work with your emotions as a nurse. And that's something that no one can really teach you, only the, the job can. But even like the general, the public doesn't have an idea of what goes on. And that's, it's like, it's like a tough thing because how much transparency can you, can you really give before you just put everyone's business out there? And that's like a tough problem to solve. Right. I mean, I, when I started writing about nursing, I really said, this is my mission. And I use that word is to educate the public about what nurses do. And I, I learned ways to disguise identities and not just follow HIPAA, but try to preserve people's privacy and dignity while writing about them. Um, and, and once I figured out how to do that, it's not really that hard, but there, there were times when nurses confronted me and said, in, in academic settings, I should I should say to be fair, it wasn't working nurses, but um, you know how can you do this? You're invading the patient's privacy, and I said, well, if I'm not doing this, there's so few voices saying this is what the work is really like. I mean, I hear you, but I I'm working very hard to show the patients I write about absolute respect, um, and I think it's important for people to know, really know what we do. And there was a, a recent study that came out before the pandemic that said nurses are sources for journalists 4% of the time. Well, actually it was 2%. It was 4% when the study was first done a couple of decades ago. And they said the difference between the four and the two is not significant, but so that hasn't budged. And during COVID it did, which was great. I don't want us to go back to the 4%, you know, let's go back to pretending that healthcare is just about doctors and all these sort of secondary people who don't do that much. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm trying to show <laughs> people what we do and how important it is. It's hard to get that message out. And Teresa, you have such a rich experience because you also became the patient at one point. So how was that experience in your life? Yeah, that was hard in a way that I didn't expect. I mean, okay, yes, I was diagnosed with cancer, with breast cancer in fall of 2017. Of course, that was hard. Um, scary, terrifying, everything that goes with a cancer diagnosis. But what I wasn't prepared for was I thought that I would feel like, oh, this system's got my back. They can hold this for me. They'll help me. And going to a place that was called a cancer center, but there was nothing coordinated about the care. And one of the first examples I give in healing, 
the book is, so I was, I was called back to a mammogram and I was in a study that had ultrasound with mammography on uh, the ultrasound. The radiologist said, oh, I see a mass, uh, terrible, terrible moment. I would not wish on anyone. Uh, and yet it happens all the time. And um, then they wanted another mammogram. She talked to me, she showed me the imaging and she said, you won't leave today without a biopsy. So all nurses listening know a scan is never hundred percent. You need to look at the tumor under a microscope to know whether or not it, it actually is cancer. So I thought, okay, great, they, they've got this. And then I went and sat down where I was supposed to wait to schedule a biopsy. And I, you know, I had tear tracks on my face. I was hunched over. It, it really was the worst day of my life. And no one came and no one came. And finally a receptionist came by and said, oh, she leaves at three, you just missed her. And I, I wanted to hurt that person. I got so angry and, you know, it wasn't just, oh, no, I don't get my biopsy scheduled. It was that feeling of nobody's looking out for me. You know, no one told the scheduler that someone's going to be coming who needs an appointment, or maybe they told her and she decided to leave anyway. Who knows what happened? But there wasn't a structure in place. You know, the other receptionist didn't say, I'm not really good at this, but I'll try or give me all your details. I'll give her a message. She'll call you when she gets in tomorrow. She gets in at eight. You know, there was nothing just the, you just missed her. And it, it felt so dismissive and I was not prepared for that. And things like that kept happening. And this was my small, slow growing stage one breast cancer, right? Still terrifying. But the, the point is they were so casual. And yet to me, it was terrifying. And, you know, I felt like, come on, this is easy to get right, <laughs> you know? And yet they didn't get it right. Um, and suddenly all those glitches in the system I'd seen as a nurse, I'm sure you guys have seen them. And I always thought, well, but I care so much and everyone I work with cares so much, you know, we, we make up for all those glitches. And suddenly I saw, no, we don't, we don't. Um, and I, I realized, and it was painful that as a nurse, I hadn't, I thought I, I tried so hard and I was empathic, but I hadn't always seen my patients as human beings. I hadn't fully grasped what they were going through. That's very interesting because like you said, there's like um, some like a, kind of gap in healthcare that, that, that you've noticed. Uh, I went to the hospital before as well. I had a, had a surgery a couple of years ago and I noticed the faults in the system as well and are the same faults as basically as you just pointed out as, as well. Um, my biggest issue was a lot of miscommunication uh, going on between healthcare workers, and I felt I wasn't getting fully listened to uh, when I went to the hospital. I kept trying to tell them kind of what was going on and how to better assess situations. I told them I had some experience as a nurse, so I kind of have an idea of what's going on internally with me. And people just kind of kept doing it their own way, and it was, it was very, it was very, it was very frustrating. Um, and then ever since then, I kind of realized to change my practice as well as a nurse and kind of be more. Little, I would say, uh, listen more actively to, to my patients because sometimes uh, 
we just get caught up in the act of nursing and you're just doing your routine and you know you do talk to your patient you ask them what's going on but sometimes you're just busy and you don't you don't really listen to them and they tell you a lot of good information about what's going on about their life sometimes we're just in that routine just trying to get stuff done that we don't really, really listen and i find listening to be very very valuable even though you know you might have a patient that isn't the best communicator it's still, still very very valuable is there anything that you've like noticed uh, in oncology or your nursing practice that patients really needed because for me recently I had a patient I was actually floated to oncology um, I just sat down with my patient and I talked to her and she was she was very happy and surprised because she told me that she was in a hospital for these past couple weeks and nobody sat down to have a conversation with her everyone would just would just come in and just assess her do their business even the physicians would come in and just look at her as just this uh, piece of medicine, you, you could say, that they're just trying to trying to treat, but nobody actually talked to her. Um, so is there anything that you noticed from your practice that patients really really needed or really wanted from nurses that you maybe changed up or just kind of tell people to improve on? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I think listening in all contexts and listening to people talking about their symptoms. So I had a patient once who'd gotten terrible mouth sores from chemotherapy, which happens. And, um, that day I came in and I got her a PCA, I mean, a, you know, a pain pump. Um, and later we, it was one of those days where they had a coffee break and they put out cookies and she brought me some cookies and she said, thank you for listening to me. Nobody was listening to me. And, you know, I did that. Oh, of course it's my job. And she looked me right in the eye and she said, no, really. <laughs> um, and it, it really struck me and I thought, wow, how could everybody be missing that she wasn't eating, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, she hadn't been my patient before, but she wasn't eating. Um, she was in this incredible amount of pain and I don't know how everybody missed that. Um, and I remember another time, this is at a patient who's oxygen, you know, pulse ox level was 91, 92, um, which can also be effective disease. You know, this is not someone with COPD or, you know, a, a normally low level like that, that they'd adapted to. And um, that was trying to get in this instance, trying to get the intern and the resident to take it seriously. And they were just like, yeah, yeah. Um, and then finally the fellow came to me and she said, Here, this is a problem. Here's what's going on. I'm just going to talk to you because I don't think the intern and the resident get what's happening, which, you know, like that never happens. Right? <laughs> um, but it really showed me in both those instances, the importance of taking the patient seriously, but also taking yourself seriously, right. As a nurse, and if there's one thing I could say to the nurses listening, I would say that, take yourself seriously. It doesn't mean you're not gonna get things wrong, um, you know, but over time you develop instincts, you know how to do the job, take that seriously because that's the best way to serve your patients and you've earned that, you know, you deserve that. Both, both of you guys brought up great points where communication, miscommunication, and coordination hasn't been facilitated in healthcare. And that's everything from outpatient to inpatient. And even in my experiences in the ICU where 
the nurse has to facilitate communication between the nephrologist and the cardiologist because they're not even communicating when you have a critically ill patient. So I feel like the nurse is the number one number one facilitator between the patient and anything else happening in the hospital to have proper communication, to utilize active listening and let their needs known. And it seems like they're not allowing us to do that because just like a few podcasts ago, we talk about active communication. You're trying to be with the patient and talk to them, but in another room, someone is pressing the pain button and you have to go there and you're already not being present with that, with that, um, with that patient. So what are some biggest takeaways that you've realized, Teresa, that we could help patients or help healthcare in general? Because it seemed like you felt a little bit like healthcare failed you in that way where you didn't feel it felt like you were listened to. Great question. I would encourage clinicians to work harder to see patients and family members as people. And but I but I want to clarify and qualify that because nobody can come to work thinking, as I did on a bone marrow transplant floor, wow third of these people are going to be dead, you know, like, and they're all really afraid of that. Um, or you, and I see you, right. You, you can't show up thinking, wow, you know, everyone here is afraid for their life. I mean, it's too much of an emotional burden, but if we're able to see people as human beings and at the same time, not pull ourselves into that, which is not easy um, and especially when we're working in a system that just wants everything to keep going smoothly, right? Like keep the assembly line moving because that's how revenue is made and that's how profit goes up. And, you know, when someone's, someone's died, let's get that room clean and get a new person in there. And so the whole system is increasingly becoming not about feeling at all um, and that's not only not good for patients, but it's also not good for clinicians. And in fact, I just read a whole book about this called Grief on the Front Lines. And I'm going to be talking with the author tonight, Rachel Jones, who's a journalist, just about how clinicians shutting off our feelings leads to burnout, um, people taking their own lives. You know, it, it's not good for us to do that because we're seeing so many emotionally hard things, right? It's not like we're working in a box factory or making televisions or, um, you know, some, you know, we're seeing people, we're seeing suffering people and how can we feel for them without it just chewing us up and spitting us out. And I'll give one example of this that I, I do talk about in healing um, it's a chapter called Two Afternoons in Hospice, which a friend of mine said, oh my God, that sounds so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, actually it's not. Um, but uh, this was uh, the house of a woman here in Pittsburgh whose father was dying and, and he was very calm. He really, he really didn't need that much from me clinically, but this was, I'd come back to work after my diagnosis and my treatment and two days in a row, I saw him and I ended up sitting um, in a chair next to her in front of a window. It was spring. There was a breeze coming in and she and I just talked and we talked about her kids and she wanted to know about my kids. And, 
you know, why they live in the house they live in and what her husband's job was. And, and before I had been diagnosed, I would have felt like that was such a waste of time. Like, why did I do that? Uh, you know, there's so many more important, important things I could have been doing. Right. But afterwards I felt like that was such good work to just give this woman 15 minutes, 20 minutes max to feel like a human being, right. To have someone say, I see you as a whole person with a life, not just, you know, a woman whose father is dying or for me, not just, you know, a body connected to a breast that has a tumor in it. Right. Um, and so that would really be my takeaway as, as you both have said, the listening in, in whatever capacity you can do that. And I know the system makes it hard. This is not about me telling people you should go above and beyond every single day. Um, that's not it. I recognize how hard it is, but in whatever way you can do that, um, it will be good for your patients and it will probably also be good for you. So do you have any good ideas on how to fix these healthcare flaws? Uh, for me, a really big obvious one is would be staffing. Um, I really noticed that, for example, my last shift, uh, I was on an oncology floor and I was talking to my patient and uh, we were short staffed and um, the chargers comes in and says, hey, you gotta take your break while I'm in like the middle of a conversation with, with, with a patient. Like I understand why she, why she did that because if we didn't take a break at a certain time, then you know, it, it delays everybody. But then I, kinda, I was having a good conversation with the patient and I kinda saw, saw the patient's face you know, like it changed, right? And it felt kind of weird. So staffing is one of the big issues in healthcare that we face and we've, we've always faced. And it's one of those things that is, I feel like is going to be last to ever get fixed. So do you have any other ideas that maybe you thought about implementing or seen somewhere around or, or heard that maybe we could change uh, some aspect of healthcare just to make it flow a little better or just be more patient-centered? Yeah, staffing is great and super important. Also flexibility. Um, it just drove me nuts that we had some charge nurses that would actually pitch in and um, take admissions. Like they would do all the work to get an admission settled and then give the admission to another nurse. Some spent their whole shift walking the halls with a clipboard. I don't know what they were doing. Um, so that kind of makes me crazy that you know, there's just not a sense of we're all here. We all need to pitch in. We all need to make this work. If someone calls off, there needs to be a float pool that's robust enough that it's not just that every nurse gets one more patient and that's the way it is and you don't get paid anymore and, you know, all that stuff. So flexibility, but also what I found is it doesn't take a lot of work to make a system more compassionate. And I, I write about in healing where I got my radiation treatments because they were so kind there and it was old fashioned stuff. You know, they were very clear about the expectations. They showed me a video of what my treatment would be like. Um, they told me in detail how to take care of my skin the techs said, we know you don't want to be here, so we have to be extra nice. And it just seemed like somebody at the top had decided, we want this to be a good place for patients. 
So, you know, the example I love telling is um, now where I go, they have one of those systems where you're supposed to check in by putting your index finger on the pad and then it pulls up your name and half the time it doesn't work. And, um, and you know, one day I forgot to do that, even though I'd been doing it every day, but I went to the reception. I said, oh, I forgot to check in. And she said, oh, that's fine. I'll just do it here. And I've been so many other offices in this healthcare system where they, you know, check in over there. I mean, and they're just rude from the get-go. And I understand that that's because they're under a lot of pressure. I don't think these are bad people. Um, but if more effort from leadership could be put into, hey, let's be clear, let's be friendly, um, but also then they need to stop writing people for stuff that maybe is not quite as important, maybe important for paperwork or billing, but it's not important for how patients do. Um, that's a big ask, I know, but that's my dream. I think systems can make money and be kind. Um, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. So that was a very long answer. I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> that's good, <laughs> we, need, we, need, we need all those ideas. I think genuinely nurses come in for the right right reasons into healthcare. They are compassionate. They love doing what they're doing as far as teaching patients, seeing the progression and being there for them. And it seems like we get put into the system out of nursing school, not knowing what to expect because we're too focused on care plans and the the system just drains our soul. And what I mean by this drains is just a workload. The compassion, we experience compassion fatigue, but we can't we have the tools to do our work. It just gets stripped away from the workload. So my suggestion into just brainstorming here is just take the workload away from the nurse. I feel like anything that has to be done just gets passed on to the nurse, whether it's checking some boxes or I know the previous hospital, it's like quiet hours or if there's some kind of issues or somebody got written up or there needs to be some interventions because of bad scores right away, more workload gets placed on the nurse and they're just fed up with things like that. Yeah, well, briefly on one of my floors, they instituted hourly rounding, which sounds good in theory, but you know, you, so you go in the room, some people don't need anything, right? They don't know why you're there. We'd have to sign on a piece of paper, which made me feel like I was in kindergarten, um, you know, <laughs> that, like showing to the hall monitor that I'd done the right <laughs> thing. Um, and it just seemed bizarre, like, one of these things that, yeah, okay, they looked at data and you get fewer of this, that, and the other thing, but you could also just create a system where, as you say, there are just enough nurses to actually go into patients when they put on their call light, you know, who can round in a normal way without having to be monitored. Um, yeah, I remember at one point they said families were no longer allowed to go get ice from the ice machine and water because it's an infection risk. And I said, oh, okay. So then they're going to take something off us, right? Because that takes a lot of time. And now suddenly, you know, like, no, of course not. So you're right. It's like more and more gets piled on the nurse and nothing ever comes off the end, um, which is really, really hard. Even if it's resources, I would say, as far as more certified nurse assistants or somebody to help do the basic activities of daily living for example if i had somebody in the morning for a med search shift let's just have four or five patients and 
I have to change three of them or take them to the bathroom. If somebody were, was able to do that task for me and help me out, I would have more time to pass my medications properly, listen to my patient's needs, educate them about the side effects, and provide that education, which not everybody can provide great education as far as not being medical, but their nurses are the primary for that. So the patient gets discharged and get readmitted. So what if our focus as a nurse is more on the the critical care stuff as far as actively listening, medication, education about, you know, nutrition, exercise and all this important stuff versus activities of daily living. Not that our ta- not that we shouldn't be doing that, but we need to somehow offset our focus to focus on making the patient feel better, not come back to the hospital. And, and you know, this goes full circle too with the scores, right? If it's if we don't have good education or a patient got discharged, doesn't know how to take care of their disease process, well, it's probably the nurse was busy and just handed some pamphlets, quickly read it over, made the signature, and we just had to go to another patient. It's just the harsh reality that anybody that's non-medical doesn't understand. Yeah, and when I'm talking to more audiences that are non-clinicians, I ask them, if you, if you have a bad experience and you want to make a complaint, please try to make a broad complaint. You know, don't just say my nurse was rushed and lazy. Um, you know, say my nurse seemed overworked. My nurse seemed like he didn't have the time he needed to give me the education that I needed. Um, you know, make it something about the system because it's too easy for managers to blame individuals and, you know, and also if there's something positive, right, say that too, but try not to target someone. I mean, you're reminding me of a day where I was just crazy, crazy overworked. And one patient's family member kept almost stalking me and like, my mother needs a bath. When is my mother going to get a bath? What do you have to do around her to get a bath? And I, you know, I just felt like, oh my God, just please leave me alone. Like, like this person over here is close to dying and is not supposed to be. And, you know, other stuff going on. You can imagine you've been there, right? Um, And of course, it's important that her mother gets a bath, but um, that sense of, you know, what do you have to do around here to get a bath? That sense of accusation was so terrible because I, I get it, but I, I just could not make that my priority. It wasn't even close. Um, and I still remember that as just this really, really hard thing about that day. Yeah, I have a question. Um, this is a little bit going to a different area of, of, of a topic, but... I wanted to ask you in the beginning, how did it feel going from a leadership position, uh, teaching classes and kind of guiding the curriculum in English versus now being a nurse and having to get orders for, for somebody and um, requiring you to like follow a plan instead of you managing a plan? Because, for example, when I used to work back in Chicago, uh, the ICU that I worked at, we had a lot of autonomy, we had a lot of, a lot of freedom. We basically um, were able, we were trained well enough that we were able to uh, put in, I want to say, order, orders ourselves while knowing why we're putting these, these things in versus here in California where I have basically no autonomy. And I, and I was very, it was very frustrating for me because I knew what I, what I had to do, but I, I couldn't do it. So I was curious, um, how did it feel for you to go from leadership to being able to guide your own schedule, your process to now requiring an approval by somebody else? That's a really good question. And I think, I think it didn't, bother me as much as it 
might have, but I, uh, we weren't supposed to put in verbal orders, but I would just do it all the time anyway, because I felt like I'm not going to make my patient wait for pain medicine or whatever. Um, yeah, but I, I share your frustration with not being able to work from standing orders. Um, you know, and, and then it's interesting doing hospice, home hospice, you are so autonomous. I mean, it's just you. Um, and th there are nurses who say they would never go back to hospital nursing because they would never give up that autonomy. And I did really like that, you know, cause the doctor will, what do you think? What do you think we should do? Well, I think we should take this person off steroids because since she started, she can't sleep and she's really irritable. Okay, great. Do it. You know, <laughs> just, <laughs> um, and it, it was much more of a collegial give and take kind of relationship with the doctors rather than here's what's happening and I'm giving the orders. And, but I also, my nursing school at least strongly emphasized that, you know, you're the final check on all medication orders. So I, even the physician orders, I felt like my role was, you know, to make sure is this right? Does it make sense? Um, so that gave me some autonomy, but yeah, it's, um, it's bizarre how they don't want nurses to work from standing orders and, and centers for Medicare and Medicaid doesn't want that either. They don't like standing orders. Um, you know, <laughs> I had to call a code on a patient once because she, we were mostly a teaching hospital, but then we had one private oncology practice couldn't get a hold of any of the doctors to get a verbal. I'd given a patient blood and she was having a reaction. So all I needed was an order of solumedrol and there was nobody who could give it to me. And I ended up having to call a code and, you know, just explain to the intensivist. And I said, all I needed was a doctor. I just needed some solumedrol. Um, you know, that's such a ridiculous use of resources. Right. But um we're not trusted to make those decisions. So interesting take. And and I hope as we transition, just as CRNAs need doctorates now and you need masters to go into a management, hopefully we as nurses can evolve a little bit too as far as our role and our responsibilities in the hospital. So this is one last question that we like to ask all of our guests. So if you had the opportunity to to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, you know, you wrote that in the notes you sent me, and the person who popped into my head was the author Virginia Woolf, um, who I imagine is probably acerbic and might not even be that nice to me, but um, she wrote this book called A Room of One's Own about how if a woman is to be a writer, she needs money in a room of her own, and I, I love that book, and I, I love her writing, but I, I think it's really that book and her thoughts on women and women's education. So it might be a kind of unpleasant coffee. It might be great, but I think that's whom I would invite. Interesting. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Taking it, Teresa. Take care. Talk soon again. Okay, bye. bye.